Hey, Housing News listeners. This is Alsana Lloyd. I'm a reporter on HousingWire's editorial team, and I'm also the producer of the Housing News podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, I have something very special for you. Earlier this week, HousingWire Associate Magazine editor Kelsey Ramirez sat down in an exclusive interview with Housing Policy Council President and former Federal Housing Finance Agency Director Ed DeMarco to discuss the nation's housing policies. In this interview, DeMarco breaks down what regulators expect from qualified mortgages and why they are now looking to change how QM status is determined. As a bonus, the former head of FHFA gives us his take on his efforts to end conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But before we listen, Housing Wire CEO and President Clayton Collins will bring you a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire. And before we get started with this episode of the Housing News Podcast, I want to bring you some knowledge and insight from our sponsor, ArchMI. With interest rates at historical lows, when finances are booming, how do you win this business? It's simple. Lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Arch's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program, makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium payment. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash refi. Thank you for listening, and here's this week's bonus episode. Hey, this is Kelsey Ramirez, the magazine editor here at Housing Wire, and I am joined by Ed DeMarco, um, president of the Housing Policy Council and former director of the FHFA. Um, so we just want to talk a little bit today about the changes that are coming to the QM patch and um, ability to repay. Um, but I guess before we start talking about those changes, um, Ed, do you want to kind of talk us through what is the ability to repay and, and why was that enacted? Sure, Kelsey, and thanks for having me. It's nice to nice to be here. Um, in the run-up to the financial crisis, we had mortgage lending activities that really started to um, diverge from prudent, traditional underwriting, and uh, it introduced a lot of risk into the system. In part, um, we saw with a lot of run-up in house prices, uh, certain lenders making loans that were not really based on the borrower's ability to repay, but were based on things such as uh, the the lender's ability to recoup their money um, through the increasing value of the house. So this is collateral-based lending, not lending based on a borrower's ability to repay. We also saw different things that confused the notion of ability to repay or masked it, things like negative amortization loans, pick-a-pay loans where a borrower didn't actually have to to you know make a normal amortizing mortgage payment, but the principal they owed was going up, not down, adding risk to the borrower. So these were features in our mortgage market that contributed to the housing crisis. So post-crisis, Congress, in enacting the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, introduced this um, law, this requirement that lenders assess the borrower's ability to repay the mortgage in order to make the mortgage. And this would seem pretty common sense that the lender should be doing it, but obviously we'd had some bad experiences. So by requiring an ability to repay standard, 
that meant that a, every loan, every mortgage loan that gets made is supposed to be done with documentation of the income and assets and with the lender uh, considering a range of factors in making the underwriting decision, including the income of the of the borrower, the assets of the borrower, the debt to income of the borrower. These are all requirements in the ability to repay rule that Congress enacted. Now this requirement of ability to repay created legal liability on the lenders. So Congress also in this part of Dodd-Frank said we want the CFPB to delineate a subset of mortgages called qualified mortgages. And this is Congress really wanted qualified mortgages to be made. And the qualified mortgage was presumed to um, adhere to or or, uh, uh, ability to repay. It was was presumed to meet the ability to repay standard. In the Dodd-Frank Act, Congress specifically delineated certain product features that would make a loan not qualifying. And those are things like negative amortization or stated income or a mortgage with more than 30 years to the loan term. Um, or a loan that was qualified under an adjustable rate loan qualified under a teaser rate as opposed to a fully indexed rate. And Congress said those cannot be qualified mortgages. And it left the rest of this up to the CFPB. The CFPB, when it made its original implementing regulations, took those product features that were in statute, made it part of the regulation, but then introduced one single element of underwriting in the definition of a qualified mortgage, and that is the debt-to-income requirement. It said that a loan had to have a debt-to-income ratio of less than 43% to be a qualified mortgage. It then, in order to implement that in a way that was clear and uh, objective, it introduced something called Appendix Q, which was, well, how are you going to define debt and income? So this became um, very complicated for lenders to to implement. CFPB, when it did this, realized that this was going to be a challenge, and so it created a huge loophole in the qualified mortgage rule, and this is what we know as the GSE patch. It said any loan that satisfied the GSE underwriting system, or basically a loan that gets sold to a GSE, was a qualified mortgage. So the GSEs didn't have to meet the Appendix Q and the 43% DTI requirement. So that was meant to be temporary. When it was originally put in the regulation, it was to expire in seven years or when the GSEs came out of conservatorship, whichever happened first. So we're nearing that seven-year expiration. So the CFPB has now been asking, okay, what do we do? The CFPB and the Federal Housing Finance Agency have said, we want to see this GSE patch go away. So the CFPB did a, an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, got a lot of comments. HPC, the Housing Policy Council, contributed comments both on its own and with a large coalition of institutions to give uh, our, our guidance and suggestions to CFPB with regard to um, making changes to the qualified mortgage rule. So if you like, I can go straight into what CFPB is doing, but yeah, sure. And also, um, while you do, can you also answer for me? I know CFPB Director Kathy Craninger, when she announced like her roles that that you're about to go into, she also said that it would have been better for Congress to legislate these changes. But since they're not, um, the CFPB is taking action. But from what you just said, it sounds like, I mean, the CFPB instituted this. So 
why would she be saying that um, Congress should be making these changes and 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 why is it that the CFPB is now making them? Right. So um, it is. So it's a really a, a, a pretty fair question because the CFPB did implement Dodd Frank as it as it was written, but then it added this DTI requirement. It did not have to do that. That was not required by Dodd-Frank. So the CFPB added it. It doesn't need Congress to take it out. And the CFPB's own look-back report highlights some of the deficiencies that have taken place in the marketplace as a result of having this requirement. I, I, I can't speak for the director's reference to Congress, but certainly having been a former regulator myself, you know, the more guidance you get from Congress about what did we really mean by this law, or now that we've seen our law in place for seven years, this is now how we're thinking about it, would help any regulator. So, I mean, I certainly can understand that if Congress feels like what is being talked about now is um, not in line with what the lawmakers want, then certainly the CFPB or any regulator would be open to the Congress saying, hey, look, this is what we really intend. But absent that, I think that, you know, the CFPB should take a look at, you know, what it has done and, you know, whether this, you know, provision makes sense or not. And in fact, that's exactly what, what, they've, what they've done. And they've did receive recently a letter from uh, several members of the Senate, bipartisan letter, saying, look, we think that we've looked at uh, your report, and we've looked at the comment letters that have come in, we think that you really should get rid of this DTI requirement and Appendix Q, that that's the appropriate step to take. And in her response to those members of the Senate, she gave some broad outline to the directional thinking CFPB has right now. So the CFPB is looking to eliminate the DTI and and replace it with um, I mean, it's not sure yet. It's asking for feedback from the industry, but it did kind of throw out pricing threshold as, as an option. Um, so what is that? Right. So let me answer this in two parts, because certainly the Housing Policy Council on its own and with a large coalition of other industry, trade associations, lenders, and uh, civil rights groups – made a recommendation to the CFPB to eliminate the DTI requirement in Appendix Q. We did not recommend replacing that with some pricing definition that would constitute a qualified mortgage. And, Kelsey, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this point, so let me try to be clear. Today, under the current regulation... Pricing doesn't define a qualified mortgage, right? It's the product features and the DTI stipulation that define whether a loan is a qualified mortgage. There is then, for qualified mortgages, an additional test for a lender to get safe harbor treatment. That is, that the loan is considered to um, comply with ability to repay as a qualified mortgage. And there, there is a pricing test to determine that safe harbor. And the pricing test is what we know as 150 basis points over, over APOR. So if you're if the mortgage rate is below that, you get safe harbor. And if the mortgage rate is above that uh, spread, then you are it's a rebuttable presumption loan, which means it's still pres- it's QM, it's a qualified mortgage, so it's presumed to comply with ATR. But the borrower may rebut that, may attempt to rebut that presumption. So that's where the pricing comes in today. What the Housing Policy Council and many others have advocated for is not 
changing the definition of a qualified mortgage to include some price, but in fact to maintain the requirement of a qualified mortgage based upon these product features and then have the pricing be determinant of where the safe harbor is. It might be worth, you know, why these product features, right? The Let's go back again to the context. In the Dodd-Frank Act, Congress wanted every mortgage loan to have to meet an ability to repay requirement. The product features that are delineated in the Dodd-Frank Act that make a loan not qualified are the kind of product features that frustrate or bypass or circumvent the notion of ability to repay. So again, the negative amortization, for example. Um, these product features or, or qualifying a borrower based on a teaser rate on adjustable rate mortgage rather than a fully indexed rate. So the reason for these product features to be used to define what's not QM is because those product features are ways of circumventing uh, an ability to repay standard. So that's why those features are important. Um, but you know what we're advocating for is keep the product features because they work hand-in-hand hand with the ability to repay standard and then use the, the safe harbor standard as, as it's existed for the last, you know, since the regulation was first put into place. Now, that's the first part of your question. The second part of your question had to do with Director Craninger in her letter to the Senate actually referenced thinking about a pricing standard. Yes. Well, so that could mean several things. One thing it could mean, looking at some of the comment letters that have come into the CFPB, is not a pricing standard to determine what is a qualified mortgage, but in fact a pricing standard to determine what is not a qualified mortgage. There have been proposals made to the CFPB that say, look, if the price on the mortgage, if the spread over APOR is greater than 250 or 300 basis points, it by definition should be a non-QM mortgage. So it's not necessarily that what she is suggesting is the price is going to be the determinant of being QM, but in fact you could have a price standard to determine certain loans are not QM. So we'll wait to see what, what CFPB actually comes up with, but in thinking about the input that they've received, I think that's an important distinction to make about how price has been used in a lot of these comment letters to them. And, uh, I mean, do you see any dangers to that, to moving towards a more price-oriented view of of the QM, um, if the CFPB does use it to determine what's not a, a QM? No, I think used in the way I was just describing, that can that can certainly be an appropriate use of price in determining what is not a QM mortgage. And this isn't this using using the mortgage rate in that way is not novel. It's how the Federal Reserve for years has, you know, defined what is a high high cost mortgage, right? This has been part of mortgage regulation for a long time. The mortgages with rates above a certain you know, threshold, you know, are considered to be riskier to have certain other characteristics where it's both lender and buyer beware. What about the fears that uh, if you use pricing to help you determine that, then lenders can just fix their prices? Yeah. So in a market where actual private capital is bearing this risk, 
right? What really ought to matter is the transparency in the marketplace, particularly a lot of what we're talking about here are loans that are being sold into the secondary market. So for the investors, it's about transparency, about the loan and the borrower characteristics and the, and the collateral characteristics, and it's about capital and capital requirements, right? So if we have private capital standing behind this, I'm not concerned about whether these things are going to be priced correctly because that's what markets do. You're, you're allocating private capital. That capital needs to have a rate of return. It is going to have to be reflective of the, of the relative risk from one loan to another in order for the capital markets to actually work effectively. So what do you think we're looking at as far as timing? I know they've already talked about um, extending the GSE patch because, I mean, this is a a huge change and it's it's not something we can just fix in in a couple of months. Um, Right. But you've been in that world, so yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's a it's a hard thing to explain. But the rulemaking process in government, in most instances, really does take time and. The rules that govern the rulemaking process are really written to make sure that this takes time and that there's adequate consideration, right? The Administrative Procedures Act, which sets forth all the um, guidelines an agency has to follow in doing a rulemaking, are designed to make sure that there is a thorough public consideration of a proposed rule and that, in fact, the regulatory agency itself goes through a considered process of analysis before putting a rule out. So the director has indicated that she expects the proposed rule to come out in May. So it's not too far away, but the patch is currently set to expire in January, and if you put a proposed rule out in May and you want to give it at least 60, preferably 90 days of public comment, and then you need time to actually analyze those comments, and they're likely to get hundreds of comments on this, you can see how that timeline is going to take up most of the most of this calendar year mm-hmm. before they can come to a final determination and produce a final rule. Well, markets need some kind of lead time on this because the mortgage lending process, you know, can be measured in, in months and sometimes many months. So the industry is going to want to have some kind of lead time between the rule being finalized and being implemented so that we can clear the pipeline and so appropriate adjustments can be made to whatever the final final rule is. So what the director said is, look, we're coming out with a proposal in May, and we realize that that's going to jam everybody, so we expect to have a short extension of the current rule to allow for an orderly transition process from the old rule to the new rule. And so that's what I that's what I expect. I don't expect the extension to be very long, but I expect it to be enough to make sure that it's not disruptive to, to markets and certainly not disruptive for individual home buyers that are in the middle of trying to purchase a home and get a mortgage on that home and then to have a major rule change happen in the midst of that. Right. So and I know a lot of this is just going to depend on what the final rule from the CFPB ends up being, but do you see this as an opportunity to um, be more inclusive um, and uh, open the the market a little bit to to more home buyers, or do you think it's is going to be the status quo? Like, do you think this is more going to be on the 
lender front that, that it gets easier for them. What do you what kind of effects do you see changes to this rule having in the markets overall? So first of all, I would expect the changes themselves to be gradual. But I think that over time, what implementing uh, a change to this rule, if it follows along the order of uh, eliminating the DTI requirement and Appendix Q, um, but otherwise maintaining you know, the other features of ability to repay and QM. And keep in mind, all the ability to repay rules are presumed to stay as they are or be further strengthened with regard to um, the, the documentation of income and the requirement that every mortgage be, uh, be fully underwritten and with, with documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what I think happens over time <laughs> is that we actually get, uh, we expand access to credit but we also expand the competitiveness of the market. We remove this special treatment that the GSEs got and nobody else got, which really sort of funneled more mortgage production into the GSEs rather than less. Um, and then the other thing it does is that it opens up in the non-GSE space, since investors really want to see qualified mortgages be made, and that's what they want to invest in, by allowing the non-GSE portion of the market to be have greater ability to make qualified mortgages, you know, that will expand, um, expand credit. And we've certainly seen, and the CFPB's Look Back Report talks about this, that there are certain of the um, limitations that the current rule has done, it has harmed uh, Self-employed borrowers, borrowers in the gig economy, retirees, uh, households with multiple sources of income, um, and, and different people contributing. These are all things that have made it harder for that segment of the market to get um, affordable credit in the mortgage space. I think the kind of change that we're talking about here should certainly help open up access to that credit without making the market itself riskier. I mean, that would be great for, for our, I know that um, we, we look at the access to credit now, and mm-hmm. it's um, much lower than it was, and not just, I'm not talking 2007 when people were going crazy, but right. even like historically before that, I mean, access to credit now is just really closed off compared to historic levels. Right. And so, I mean, I think that if we allowed for more innovation and more competition in the marketplace that we could find that there are more good, uh, credit-worthy borrowers out there that can be lent to. But right now, this is all done in a way to funnel everything to the GSEs, and so the GSEs become the, the, the only determinant of, of, um, you know, of, of you know, underwriting. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pivot on you just a little bit okay. since I have you here. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the exiting conservatorship. I mean, that's all of this is coming up because the GSEs are exiting conservatorship. Everyone's asking, well, what are we going to do now? Um, we're, you know, looking at what, what does the market need to look like after this? Um, I know Director Calabria has talked about he wants the GSEs to either be out by the end of his term or at least well on their way out. I mean, where do you see that? Do you think that's a, a reasonable expectation? Well, I think we certainly should be taking Director Calabria seriously. He 
He is well familiar with um, the GSEs before conservatorship and all during conservatorship. He entered this position with his eyes wide open about the the conditions and the circumstances and the legal framework as uh, as it exists and how he understands his responsibility. And he has been abundantly clear that this is his intention. So I think that that intent needs to be taken quite seriously. Um, that said, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, and he would be the first to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the timeline, as urgent as this is, the timeline is, is inherently uncertain. As he himself has said, there's a, quite a number of hurdles that need to be cleared, and he's not going to release them from conservatorship just to say he did it by a certain date, but that it has to be predicated on these various hurdles being cleared. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of work going on at FHFA. Let, let me say just one thing, you know, kind of big picture about this. I, I applaud the director for bringing energy and intensity to this issue. These conservatorships were not expected or desired to be going on 11, 12 years or more. Mm-hmm. But because what had fundamentally failed in 2008 is Fannie and Freddie failed in 2008, but the charter, the, 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 the structure of these two entities as government-sponsored enterprises is also what failed. And so the tension has always been that only Congress can change those charters and only Congress can fix the inherent flaws in that GSE structure. And so that's why we've been waiting on Congress to do something. But, you know, the director sees a path that he thinks he can, you know, end the conservatorships you know, I think we may still need Congress, even if the conservatorships end, to, to address these charter issues. Mm-hmm. But the director is uh, certainly charting a course where he's saying, look, this, is, this has got to come to an end. We're going to bring it to an end. And in that process, among the things he's talked about is we need to make this um, landscape more competitive. We need to uh, uh, define a capital standard that's appropriate for the enterprises. We need to um, get better alignment with the other regulators. And internally, you know, he has said FHFA needs to be better prepared as a regulator to pivot from being conservator to first and foremost being the safety and soundness regulator of the post-conservatorship entities. So there's a lot to unpack there and a lot for him still to both develop and then explain to all the rest of us how this is going to work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it right. He's he's brought this focus to to his role, and and that we we didn't necessarily see before with with um, even when we talked about exiting conservatorship under Mel Watt, um, we we didn't see that same kind of focus and and drive to really see it through and and get it done. Right, right, and he is certainly bringing that energy. And I will tell you, he's got he's certainly got the industry's attention on this. And you know, I think that that's good. Look. The industry, I mean, let me speak for the Housing Policy Council, we, we want the conservatorships to end. Um, we also want to see the underlying structural uh, flaws of the GSE structure addressed. Some of those things, as I've already said, can only be done by Congress. But ultimately, we ought to have a landscape in which the availability of a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is secured, but that that mortgage market is not being principally backstopped by the U.S. taxpayer. It should be getting supported 
principally by private capital bearing the risk, managing that risk, pricing it, and doing what private market is supposed to do. The government should be setting up guardrails and standards and transparency, and it should be working to level the playing field. Right? So what we're looking for is a more level playing field where we can have broader participation. That competition brings innovation and it brings more consumer choice, but it also can help diminish systemic risk. We cannot forget why Fannie and Freddie ended up in conservatorship in the first place was the enormous systemic risk they pose not just to the U.S. financial system, but the global financial system. And we really need to make sure that as part of ending the conservatorships, that that systemic risk has been addressed. I agree. And I, I think, though, you know, as we look forward, I think there's a lot of bright spots in, in the future for the housing market. And, and I think we have the right leadership in place that's mm-hmm. going to drive it forward and, and make it happen. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, uh, there's an awful lot going on in the, uh, in the mortgage space. And we focus this conversation a lot on Fannie and Freddie and, and CFPB, understandably. But let me just say that part of this is not just about the Fannie Freddie market, but restoring a private label securitization market, right? One that is transparent, one that is uh, competitive, and one that is protecting both investors and, and consumers. And there's work being done now in other uh, among various regulators and in the marketplace to further uh, bring that market back. And that deserves our attention and and uh, focus and support as well, because what we really, in the end, want to have is, you know, all of these segments of the secondary mortgage market, whether it's the Ginnie Mae segment or what we've known as the conforming conventional space that Fannie and Freddie have traditionally served, or, you know, the non-conforming conventional space that's been the purview of the private label market, we need all of these aspects of our housing finance system to be working. We need them to be operating safely and soundly. We need there to be a lot of uh, transparency and consistency and disclosures in those markets because if private capital markets have good disclosure and can trust what they're seeing, they're the ones with their capital at risk that are going to identify inflection points and turning points in risk and be able to, you know, stem things um, uh, to prevent the kind of disaster we had, you know, 12 years ago. We all look at that and, and I, I think we know where not to go, you know, right. it's just figuring out then, you know, where, where do we go now and, and how does that look and, and what does that look like, you know, how, how do we implement what we need in, in place to make sure that that what we see when we grow this market again and, and we build it back up, that it isn't what we saw back in, in 2008. Right, but. right. And, you know, another part of this discussion that you know that we haven't touched on yet but is really important in the broad <laughs> policy discussion here is what does it mean to provide support for affordable housing and to help encourage home ownership on the margin? I think there's legitimate concerns about the way we've been doing it has um, – you know, has certainly inflated house prices. And it really, it's been not well targeted in terms of serving, you know, the the communities and the borrowers that we think Congress, you know, traditionally intends to help when it talks about sort of encouraging home ownership on the margin. So mm-hmm. this is also an opportunity for us to rethink 
what it means to support affordable housing, to, 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 in, to do things to help improve the home ownership rate among uh, certain segments of our population, um, we can target our support in a more direct way to help where these families actually meet where their uh, impediments or the hurdles they face really are and to provide it directly to them rather than through the kind of uh, credit subsidies that are um, distortive of the marketplace. They do inflate house prices, and they end up benefiting not necessarily the the borrowers that they were intended to benefit. And so this is a real opportunity for us, um, both as an industry and in the policy world, to really rethink our approach here and to actually uh, achieve better outcomes for uh, American home buyers. Thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a great discussion, Kelsey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tune in at the end of the month for our season finale. 